face is big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. Space. Getting bored of space. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Outside of a Dog about science fiction. My name is Jonas Hock, a humanoid from the planet Earth. And my name is Ford Prefect, because that is a... No, no, I can't lie. It's Christian Schneider. Hello. Also vaguely humanoid, probably from the planet Earth. This time we are talking about a real classic, not just of science fiction, but also of comedy literature. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Actually, this didn't start out as a book. It started life as a series of radio plays on the BBC, which Adams then later reworked into a series of five novels, or, as he put it, an increasingly inappropriately named trilogy. This first book in this trilogy starts off with nothing less than the destruction of Earth. There are only a few survivors, one of them Arthur Dent, a rather pedestrian man from England, who goes on to have really, really bizarre adventures with his friend Ford Prefect, who happens to be a writer for the guidebook The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Among the beings they will meet, there's the president of the galaxy, Seyfried Beeblebrox. There is the ancient civilization of Magraphia, building planetoids. And there are mice. You know, mice. Actually, the most intelligent beings on our planet. So it is interesting. We're reading the first part of a trilogy with five parts. And usually when we do this, that's sort of a stand-in for the entire series. However, here I feel that... That's not really the case. The first thing I would like to talk about is the franchise. Because The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is so much more than just a series of books. It started out as a radio play, then there were the books, then there was a TV version, which is actually how I first encountered it. Then there was the 2005 film, which, well, let's not talk about that too much. But actually, Adams was involved in all of these in a major way. So Christian, I would like to ask you about this franchise. Have you actually read all five parts? Because I have to confess, I've only read the first four. I never got around to the fifth. I feel that this is a series of books where you can just dip in and out of it fairly easily. It has no great continuity, no great coherence. It's more a series of weird events. Honestly, I think, yeah. The first two books are kind of necessary because the cliffhanger of the first one is kind of obvious and the greater plot, if there is something like that, is continued in the second one. And you might even consider the third one to be part of that as well when they kind of get an answer to the whole question about life, universe, blah, blah, blah. I mean, a more elaborate answer than 42. But yeah, I read all five and the series is entirely inconsistent in quality, in tone, not in humor, though. I think many of the ideas that are present in the first one are there in the other books. I actually agree as well. This is really good, though, because you can just dip in, see if you like it. If you like it, go on. And if you don't, just stop. The first book is very short. <laughs> it's not going to take you a lot to realize whether or not you like it. And it's also extremely idiosyncratic. If you read a few pages, you will know immediately what it is and whether you like it or not. 
Of course, this is part of our little unofficial series of exploring science fiction literature, which is something I didn't really know a lot about when we started the podcast, and I still know very little about it. We read Neuromancer, which I didn't really like. We read At the Mountains of Madness, which could be considered kind of science fiction, weird fiction, which I also kind of didn't like. Then we read 1984, which I thought I liked, and then I realized, hmm, not really. So... I'm starting to wonder, do I maybe not like science fiction? Can I not call myself a nerd anymore? And so luckily, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy came along, which I knew for a long time. I, I actually listened to the audiobooks as a nine-year-old, I think, or eight-year-old. And even then it worked for me, which is interesting as well. And rereading it now or re-listening to the audiobooks now, I realized, oh, yes, of course, this is what I love. But it's not really science fiction, though, is it? No, so I don't like science fiction after all. Damn. Maybe I can calm your mind. I think this is maybe not science fiction as you imagine it, because it's many, many things. But it is still science fiction. It may not be so much about the science part, that it is about the present day in a kind of possible future and social developments. Because the Earth is destroyed to make space for an intergalactic highway in the very first two chapters of the book. So sort of the present day becomes the final days, the day of judgment. But at the same time, I think, yeah, this is science fiction because it is about humanity. It is about very deep questions about the human race and its status in the universe. If you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know that, just like the quote that we used in the beginning of the episode, space is so big that humanity doesn't play a very big role in it. So it is still science fiction, only science fiction that takes into account that maybe the future of humanity is not as important as other science fiction authors might think. Though that is then again subverted, or you might say watered down towards the end of this book. At the beginning, Earth is destroyed as just a useless planet that's in the way of a new highway. But then it is revealed that actually Earth was built by this ancient civilization of Margrethea, and it was built for these interdimensional beings who wanted to learn about life, the universe, and everything else. Now, they built a first computer, Deep Thought, which told them that the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything else was 42. They weren't very satisfied with that answer, and Deep Thought told them, well, that's because you don't actually know what the question is. And then the Earth is this new supercomputer that was built to find the question to the answer. But even then, even if you consider the Earth as a kind of supercomputer and the last human, Arthur Dent, to be important in that regard, it doesn't really matter. I mean, just the answer to that question is 42. It's totally absurd. And they won't find out the question, really. They won't find out in the next books either. They come across a message from the creator of the universe in one of the later books. If I remember correctly, it says, sorry about all the mess. Yeah. There is no point to it. It may be that Earth is more important than, for example, the titular Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tells us, where the entry for Earth says harmless, and it's only amended later and says Mostly harmless. But at the same time, nothing in the universe really has a meaning. Nothing in the universe really makes any sense. So I don't know whether we can see this view on humanity as very positive or progressive in that regard. 
We're already talking about the deep philosophical themes that are addressed in this book and in the series as a whole. Interestingly, when we discussed what kind of topics we wanted to talk about, I said I would like to talk about the existentialism. And you said you wanted to talk about the nihilism of the series, which... Tomato, tomato. Basically two sides of the same coin. But it comes back to another topic that goes through several of the episodes of this podcast, this existentialism. What is our place in the universe? How can you come to terms with the world? You're right. It comes back to that. And maybe it's kind of telling that we picked up on that and that we, independently from each other, wanted to talk about that. This is a book that asks the big questions. It may tell you that the big questions are not worth asking or that the answer is 42 and that leaves you just as flabbergasted as before. But it is a book that has a very particular stance. Another author who's often compared to Douglas Adams is Terry Pratchett, who sadly passed away last year. And remember reading an article that compared Pratchett and Adams and said basically they may have a similar style with regard to their humorous writing and their connection to genre, but they have very different views of the world. Pratchett is always writing about how much human existence means, how much stories we come up with mean. Adams is basically saying, doesn't mean anything. You are a speck of dust in a greater speck of dust, which is an even greater speck of dust in the entirety of the universe, which in the best case is kind of absurdly funny. In the worst case, well, this is a theme that really comes out in the first book a little, where you realize, oh, Earth is insignificant and it is just removed because it's in the way. But even more in the second book, where there's a method of execution that is the total perspective vortex. Basically, you're locked into a chamber and the machine gives you a perspective of the universe, the entire universe, and then shows you your place in it and how insignificant you are. And it is said that this is something that no being can survive. There's also the infamous fifth book, which ends with all versions of Earth that ever existed in the multiverse being destroyed I think Adams was battling depression at that point, and he kind of apologized for that ending later on. But it is a view that goes through the entire series, and as you mentioned, is there in the first book as well. Earth is destroyed, and Arthur is left alone in the universe. No one else there. But you know what he mourns the most when he realizes that? Not the death of his family, or the death of everyone he ever knew. The one thing that brings him down on his knees is realizing that he will never eat McDonald's again. It's interesting. Also, he cannot deal with this. It's simply too much. So he thinks about the death of his family, and it's just incomprehensible. Then he re realizes there will never be a McDonald's meal again, and then brings him to his knees. Then he tries to think, okay, America doesn't exist anymore. Cannot imagine it. Then he thinks, okay, New York doesn't exist anymore. And he thinks, well, I never really believed in New York anyway. <laughs> and that maybe is a nice transition to the humor, because even though these are bleak, books with a bleak outlook on life, they are still comedy. So these are very funny books. I, at several points, laughed out loud whilst reading them. And it still works. I mean, I read this many years ago, first in German, then in English, and there's so many great quotes that you could use. Just one of my favorites, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. That is still legendary. And, there are many and every civilization goes through the how why and where phases? How can we get something to eat? Why do we need something to eat? And where should we have lunch? 
Lunch seems to be a, a, a big theme in Douglas Adams' life, and it is a big theme in my life, so I can identify with that. I think the humour is part of why these books have such a resonance. I mean, nerd culture, and since nerd culture is by now basically popular culture, popular culture is deeply, deeply influenced by this. You will often find the number 42 referenced, for example. I had to think about that. Last time on the podcast, we discussed the influence of 1984. With The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we have the same thing. We have... 42, we have Babelfish, we have Vogon poetry. All these concepts are somehow part of the pop cultural matrix of our time. And I think not only these terms, but the very tone that Adams uses, this very verbose, very self-referential tone, but that is always very light. Even those very existentialist and dark questions and answers are presented in this very witty tone. And I think... That is the greatest testament of the book's legacy and of Adams's influence. I think absurdists might be the best to describe both his view of the world and his humor. For example, one of my favorite jokes in the book is the Vogon ships hung in the air like bricks usually don't. It's just completely out of the blue and weird, but it makes a certain absurd kind of sense. And bricks are mentioned several times. So the brick humor. Uh, also, at one point, he refers to a smile as immensely brickable. Yeah. So I think that I would agree that the view of the world or the universe is absurdist. The humor often is not. The humor often makes an incredible amount of sense, even though it is often by referencing other things, by connecting things. And in the end, often it only makes sense if you read the next book, for example, or if you remember what happened in the beginning. Humor is maybe the one thing that kind of makes meaning in the Adams books. It shows how absurd the universe and the search for the meaning of life really is. But at the same time, it is the one thing that connects everything. Maybe that is the answer. Of course, we know that the answer is 42. But maybe another answer could be, yeah, there is no point to it. So just have a laugh. Which is not the worst, I think. That's definitely something that I use as a motto in life. So why not? Definitely. I mean, we talked about existentialism or nihilism. And even if you consider nihilism to be a valid point of view regarding life, the universe and everything, the consequence might not be bleak despair. The consequence might be yeah, laughing about it. And that is, you could say, a very English response. This very kind of calm, not very excessive, being aware of your own shortcomings. But, well, you can't do anything about it, so why not just enjoy the ride? Jonas, you said you wanted to talk about Englishness in the novel. Another connection to 1984 again. It's amazing how English these novels are, which might be really at the root of my Anglophilia, maybe, that I love The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from such a young age. Of course, Arthur Dent is a sort of everyman character, but he's even more an every Englishman character. He works in local radio. <laughs> At one point, he just wants to get a nice cup of tea. And he makes the board computer so busy with that, that the board computer cannot be bothered with calculating evasive maneuvers to escape from some nuclear warheads anymore. These books are very English in their humor, but also even the intergalactic characters seem to be very, very English, kind of stiff upper lip reserved, except for, say, for Beeblebrox, who's a hedonist. And to interestingly, 
in the film version, but also in the audiobooks by both readers, by Stephen Fry and by Martin Freeman, two great readers for the audiobooks, by the way, that would be something I would recommend, he's realized with an American accent. Because somehow Seyfried Bibelbrox is just the most American guy you can imagine, baby. Because he's so cool, and he's a president of the galaxy, and it's... It's incredible how his Americanist jumps off the page at you. If anyone else had written a series like that, Seyfried would have been the hero and not Arthur. And what is really interesting is how clear the difference between them is, how clear their antagonism is, how clearly they are the opposite ends of the spectrum. But in the end, they're both kind of stranded in the universe. They just have different ways of dealing with that. This is actually where I would really make a case for the third novel, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, because there Adams really addresses this topic of Englishness in a very interesting way. It tells the story of the planet of Cricket, which is isolated from the entire universe, and it's just, you know, a lovely place with meadows and people singing songs, and then a spaceship crashes there, and suddenly they're exposed to other to the concept even of other civilizations and they build spaceships and they go out into the universe and realize oh blimey this is ghastly we will have to destroy it simply and this is such a bleak look at englishness and english history because that's basically what the british did they went around the world and said well this will not do we will either civilize it or just well just shoot everyone and uh, of course the fact that cricket is actually in the novel presented as the inspiration to the English sport of cricket, says something about Adam's view of Englishness that is very, well, not even self-deprecating, but aware of how horrible Englishness can be as well. So this might be a bit of an antidote for Anglophiles like me. It's also kind of an interesting view that there are many instances where Adam seems to take up active criticism of society, of how people act. I mean, the book starts, for example, with this description of Earth, and it adds this nice description of about 2,000 years after a man said that it would be nice for a change to be nice to each other and then was nailed to a tree. That tells you that maybe Adams is not as nihilist or absurdist as you might think. Sometimes he really has to say very specific things about England, about the world, about the society we live in which again might make Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy more science fiction than just an absurdist, humorous romp through space and time. I think our attitude already comes out fairly clearly. I kind of feel guilty, actually, that we can't say anything more criticizing or more substantial. But what else can we say? I mean, I can see why people might not like this book, because it is weird. It is way weird. But you know what? Give it a try. I would definitely say you should read this book. It is culturally significant and it is immense fun. It will raise questions, maybe uncomfortable questions. That's good. That's what books are supposed to do. I understand if you don't like it, but give it a try and see if you do. I could never not recommend this book. I think I'm such a part of it or it is such a part of me. We talked about its influence on pop culture and nerd them and that is me. That is us. So to not like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is basically incomprehensible to me. That would be absurdist, to not get into the humor and not read this book and not consider it to be a classic. So I can't even answer that question. I can just say, yeah, read it. So two endorsements for The Hitchhiker's Guide, but actually there's several things we would like to recommend that you read additionally. My first recommendation is concerned with the existentialism 
of the series and the absurdism. Therefore, quite appropriately, it is by an absurdist philosopher. After you read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you might feel, oh, okay, so there's no point to life, so what am I still doing here? I asked myself those same questions when I was a bit younger, and a text that tremendously helped me to get to grips with the universe and my place in it and my place in this absurd, pointless world that we live in was The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, where he describes existence in an absurd, as he says, godless, pointless universe. He says, yeah, it is all of those things, but you simply keep going. And by simply keeping going, you give meaning to it in some way. So I would recommend you read The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. I also have a recommendation that goes in that existentialist or even nihilist direction. It is a more literary recommendation. It is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, because it is also a very humorous book, a very funny book, but a very dark book as well. And it might not have the cosmic scale of Douglas Adams, but the Second World War, which is often the one serious thing in our recent history as citizens of the Earth. And to treat that with the same kind of irreverence and still see it as the horrible thing it was, that is no small feat. And it is still a very entertaining book. And it also has the same kind of iconic quality. Catch-22, just like Big Brother or 42, is part of pop culture now. I would definitely recommend reading Joseph Heller's Catch-22. My second recommendation also goes in an existentialist direction, but rather than science fiction, it tends more to the science bit. It's written by a friend of Douglas Adams, by a scientist, namely by Richard Dawkins. Now, I know he's a very controversial figure, but he's still another person who tremendously influenced my life and who helped me come to terms with the absurd world that we live in, in a very major way. And this book that I would recommend by him is Unweaving the Rainbow. After his first two publications that were scientific bestsellers, really, he was criticized for espousing a bleak view of the universe. And he wrote Unweaving the Rainbow as a reaction that said, hang on, no, I still think that the world is beautiful. I find joy in the world because of science. And when you read Unweaving the Rainbow, you might be able to find some of his appreciation for nature, for life, the universe, and everything else. An immensely hopeful and very happy book, Unweaving the Rainbow by Richard Dawkins. My second recommendation also still has this absurdist bent, but it goes more in the direction of genre literature, of science fiction. And if you think that The Hitchhiker's Guide is weird, wait till you read this. My recommendation is John Dies at the End by David Wong. I can't even begin to describe this book. This is weird, weird shit. People explode for no reason. They're intracosmical demons. They're talking dogs. They're ghost hands. There is a strange drug that is called soy sauce and it lets you see the world as it is. But John Dies at the End has the same mixture of weirdness, bleakness, humor, and in the end, some sort of hope. And just its weirdness alone makes it worth checking out. I can understand if people hate this book, but at least have a look at it, because it is really like nothing else. John Dies at the End by David Wong. But what are your thoughts on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Do you hate it? Do you love it? Let us know at outsideofdogcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us at iTunes. Please rate us there. Please leave a comment there. This is actually our last episode before our one-year anniversary of doing this podcast. Isn't it incredible this has been going for one entire year? It feels much longer. So oh. much longer. Oh, I was... Oh. <laughs>
Okay. And to celebrate our one-year anniversary, the next episode is a rather special one, where we go back and look at our episodes and talk about what we missed. Because basically, after every episode, there's this moment where we say, Oh, gosh, I forgot to say that. So come back on the 12th of February for our one-year anniversary episode, What We Missed. Thanks for listening. Not an entire year, but at least this episode. Or for the entire year. You know who you are, you weirdos. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Hey girl, my name is Vincent van Gogh. I've got something real special for you. It's my ear in a box. <laughs> my ear in a box, girl.